Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Emma Ruth Rundle, a Los Angeles-based musician and visual artist. Emma's new album, Engine of Hell, is out now on Sergeant House, and it's a absolute corker. If you've been following Emma's trajectory over the past few years, you might have heard her 2018 record, On Dark Horses, which is almost like a celebration of the dynamic between the members of the band at that time. There's a real sense of amalgamated energy moving in a unified direction, these huge echo-smeared crescendos of guitar, Emma's voice just barely piercing out over the top of these clouds of sentiment. And then there were the collaborative records with Val, where the distortion was really cranked up, hugely dense records, and yet counteracted by these incredible melodies. That mixture of heaviness and those swerves of chord progression felt like a ship rocking on the waves kind of almost felt inevitable that the next step would be for Emma to shrink right back down and contract to a record that focuses primarily on the voice in conjunction with either piano or guitar. It's a record that has so much space in it, there's plenty to lean into in terms of the negative space on this record the stuff that contains the sense of the circumstance in which the record was recorded. I mean, it feels to me like a record that was captured when the sentiment felt at its strongest. Um, You know, there's a sense of present tense to this album and its presentation. Great to be able to speak to Emma about her voice on this record as well, because it's stunning. I really like the record, and I love speaking to Emma about it and her three important picks as well three really different records it was a lot of fun to talk about them you can go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on those picks and emma's music head to emmaruthrundle.com you can find more information about engine of hell there and also the three music videos that have thus far been produced for the record a beautiful visual counterpart to the record thank you so much for listening and supporting us always, you can head over to coffee, ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening to chip in a few coins to help things tick by. But regardless, thank you so much for your, your support. Okay, I hope you enjoy this one. I certainly did. This is Emma Ruth Rundle on Crucial Listening. Hello, Emma. Welcome to Crucial Listening. 
Hi, Jack. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So we're here to talk about your three important albums. Uh, before we get stuck into those, I want to talk about your new album, Engine of Hell, on Sergeant House. Um, now, I want to start by talking a little bit about the history of wanting to do a record like this. Like, I know that you'd planned on doing like a stripped back record around the same time as On Dark Horses, but it didn't come together then. What was different about this album and the time that you went for it that allowed it to happen on this occasion rather than a few years back? Yeah, um, you're very, this is very true. Uh, so a few years ago, you know, when I was making On Dark Horses, I just, I was touring and living with and actively traveling with a group of musicians who became my band, um, the JJL crew. And right before I'd met them, I was, you know, touring with some other musicians and I thought I, that would maybe make sense to do a solo strip back record. But then I, you know, once I got involved in this like rock and roll whirlwind with these people, we just had this amazing chemistry that as a group playing together that I, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to capture that. So writing on dark courses with the intention of including those specific musicians uh, seemed to be the pertinent idea at the time. And I put aside um, the solo strip back thing, which I'm glad I did because the material, is, it just wouldn't have been the same. And, and, and then after touring that for several years, doing the collaboration with Thou, which I don't, if for anyone who's listening, I did a collaborative album and EP with the Louisiana-based um, doom metal band, I guess mm-hmm. is how you describe them, uh, called Thou. And that was very maximal, heavy, you know, four guitarists playing down-tuned riffs. Um <laughs> It was it was really you know epic sounding. So after completing that process of you know the year or so of writing, and we went and played Roadburn and really fully investing in that project and immersing myself in that group of people, uh, it made sense to shrink the world back down and kind of want to shake off things. Not that they were you know not shake them off because they were bad but I kind of needed to come into contact with my true self just myself Mm. again and um yeah so it, it made sense it was time it was time to do engine of hell and then life happened and the material that came to be on the album sort of started bubbling up and the two met each other the production concept and the content of the record Okay, I think were two separate sides that came together in a way that was absolutely appropriate and what it had to be for this record to make sense to me. And the piano obviously features heavily on this record and it's an instrument that I know hasn't been part of your musical life for quite a while. What was it that led you back to the piano, do you think? Um, there were some logistical things that prevented me from playing piano for a long time uh it's a it's a pretty inconvenient instrument it's cumbersome (laughs) (laughs) you know um i was very nomadic in my life um 
and just didn't have access, you know. The guitar was convenient. It was easy to carry around. You don't need electricity to play it. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that you need one to play a piano, but I certainly wasn't in a position to have a piano until last year. Settled enough and had enough, had the luxury to be able to have a space, have time, and have enough money to get a piano. Um, So having access, having time enabled me to get it, and I just felt I've been, like, craving the piano for a while. You know, I have a relationship with guitar. It's what I'm known for, I think, especially with electric guitar and effects and all this stuff. And it has a more of analytical space in my mind, whereas the piano is more purely emotive, and I can Mm. kind of sit down and just improvise on it. And I felt that I'd said so much on guitar. I wanted that connection to stream of consciousness and resonance that a real piano could bring. So, yeah, I hope that explains it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I saw actually an interview you did recently where you talked about, I think someone from the audience asked about classical music that you liked and you picked up John Cage's Inner Landscape and you were like, I'm getting reacquainted with the piano again and I'm playing the sheet music for this. So, I mean, was there a reacquaintance process with the piano to, I guess, get yourself to a point where you could effectively enact a stream of consciousness and, you know, feel that you were doing it fluidly? Yeah, I guess, I mean, there was, there was, absolutely. Um, I don't know, it was just different this time in a way. I guess I, you know, on tour there'd be a venue that would have a piano and I'd kind of sit down and poke around on it and that thing just wasn't there it was like a language Mm. I'd forgotten how to speak but once I got this piano you know and it really the idea really set in deep within myself that I needed to do this and then I got the piano into my home it was a pretty short amount of time from having it there to then being fully able to be writing and and really just improvising on the piano every day didn't take a whole lot of time Hmm. Um, I don't really know how to explain it or why it was this time, why it was different, but I think I was just thoroughly committed to reconnecting. So my brain was like, okay, well, here's access to all this old information. You can have this back. (laughs) Yeah. And as well, I want to touch on your vocal approach, because I guess an album as quiet as this seems to necessitate a different approach to the voice. And there's so much here I think on this record that your voice does that feels so distinctive to this setup and really striking for that reason where did this record take you in terms of your voice and I mean has it changed your relationship with your voice and how you perceive it as an instrument absolutely yeah thanks for bringing that up I feel it's not something It's kind of, I guess, getting been overlooked a little. The vocal approach on this album is a huge departure for what from what I do and have done um, Mm. in the past. I think in the way that it's different, it's different. I I guess from a technical perspective, I sing in falsetto a lot more on this album, on Engine of Hell, um, Mm. which is a very fragile part of my vocal range. It is much quieter, as you said, and writing this music you know you're alone and i it's an invitation to come closer to 
be close to the source, close to the thoughts in my mind, close to the sound of my own body, you know. Um, and the evolution of my singing style, at a certain point, I developed a more like intense chest voice, um, projecting at volume to sing over the bands that I've been in. Uh-huh. Just out of pure necessity. I'm like singing in the head voice that. I'm singing and on this album just simply is not a thing when you play in a loud rock band. It's not <laughs> right. possible, especially yeah. when you're playing at like, you know, a glorified, like, or, a, you know, a pub or whatever where the sound system is, there's not a sound person that we're not playing in some massive stadium where it can be attuned and I can have the separation. Didn't have to sing over a band anymore. I was able to sort of explore a more fragile and I guess in some ways sort of demented vocal that could express the t- the psychological landscape and territory of what I where I was going and um, traveling with this album hmm. and yeah so I think it invites the listener to also come close to the music yeah on that as well I think the way the album is presented in terms of its recording brings that process, accelerates that process rather as well. I mean, it's so stripped back and unadorned. I think one thing I really notice as well is the way that the vocals are are recorded or mixed brings such attention to the top range of what you're doing. There is body to the way that it's presented, but there's also a lot of emphasis on, say, like rasp and um, and that falsetto as well seems to really be captured that register for some reason um can you talk to me about where you recorded the record and and what that recording process looked like yeah um and all the recording stuff i really have to uh give a shout out to sunny de perry who's um, you know has become a close friend this is the second album we've done together Mm. uh he was the engineer and co-producer on marked for death and um he just did a final mix for me on a soundtrack I did earlier this year. Uh, I love working with him, and he put a lot of time and attention into the pre-production for Engine of Hell with research. You know, we would talk a lot about albums we loved, kind of like we're going to do today. Mm-hmm. And he would then go away and do all this research about recording techniques, styles, microphones, mic setups. Wow. Um, uh, to be prepared for the recording process and yeah we tracked the record in stinson beach california you know a coastal town at the place called um panoramic house which it was just us and you know we recorded it in december of 2020 up on this hill epic view it was very strange. Um, so used to being around so many people. I mean, this isn't this isn't a COVID record. You know, I set out started the started the process of writing actually in Wales. Right. Yeah. And I, I took a month alone. <laughs> I went. I was like, I need time alone. And then you know, this was before everything shut down. Like, didn't really understand. I got way more than I had hoped for. Anyway. <laughs> Recording, sorry, um, the tangents, I'm like really bad. I've had way too much coffee. Um, <laughs> so Sunny was Sunny and I were there. We were at a place in Stinson Beach for 10 days, just the two of us. Well, we had an assistant the first day helping do mic setups. 
the tracking room was upstairs. The, um, the control room was downstairs. So Sonny's down there. I'm up in the top. And for the guitar stuff, we did three mics, baffled, sitting in a baffled space to try to get some isolation. And it's the, all the guitar songs are live takes. The idea was to like capture a human performance, you know, right? Flawed warts and all. Um, there's some kind of energy that transference that happens in that, and I. There were albums that I love that I, that we'll talk about that informed yeah. that decision. But um, yeah, ten days we tracked a lot of songs. It was stressful. It was weird. It was eerie. I mean, being up in that tracking room alone. I got kind of scared a few times. <laughs> it's yeah. just the silence of it all. Um, but then Sonny and I at night, you know, after a day of working on the stuff, we'd get down there and listen back to mixes. And I think there was a great amount of tension release. I'd get really funny and pull out the Mellotron, do some... Uh, I did some um, overdubs that we ended up just calling them Dracula's Castle. We'd just be <laughs> laughing a lot at the end of the day because... I think just how heavy the music and the experience was. We had the just sort of huge release at the end of the day. That was great. Um, it gave some levity to the whole process, which was much needed. Great. Well, Emma, I'll include a link to the record in the show notes. It's really amazing. I haven't had loads of time with it, obviously, because when we're recording this, it's not out yet, but it really hasn't taken long for it to lodge itself with me i find myself thinking about it um all the time so yeah i'll include a link people should definitely check it out it will be out by the time that you hear this um and we should move on to your important records so you've picked three uh, as my guests do um one question i like to ask before we get to the records themselves is how you thought about the word important when you picked this particular list of records so was there a way that you understood or interpreted the word important to come up with the list of records that you did? Yeah, I just, I, I had to really simplify the, the request into the context of what I'm doing right now. So I chose three records that were important in informing me and my process for making Engine of Hell. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I chose, because otherwise, you know, music is my whole life. So it right. would be like, you know... We, how it had to be within the context of this current thing I'm doing, I think, to limit the possibilities, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Absolutely. Cool. Great. Well, let's go with your first one. Which one do you want to talk about first? I think let's go with the Sybil Bear color green first. Oh, nice. Okay, great. Yeah. So tell me a bit about yeah why this album is important to you. Okay, this album is important to me, um, and again, I'm just going to relate this to my process because that's, I, I feel like, a good lens from which to speak about these albums, and this record, like, almost is, like, an ingredient list for what went into my mind when I was working on my stuff, um, this record is important because it holds a really interesting, fragile, beautiful, simple, and poignant moment of a woman's life. Um, hmm. it, it has an unrefined quality 
in that this there's such an interesting honesty to it and you can hear the songwriter like finding themselves and doing something purely for the art of it and the expression of it you know this I guess we can talk about the background of the album for people who don't know but um Mm -hmm. just to answer your question why it's important to me is that there's a beauty and an awkwardness and an intimacy in this record and it wasn't made with an intention of being public it was like a private work so like almost in the category of outsider art yeah and for me there's something very special about that it just the when i heard this album it brought me to tears in a way that's like i i don't know i don't know that person ever set out to do that but right it just drops your it makes you drop your guard and that's such an important priceless thing you know to kind of be able to reach inside a complete stranger across time you know this record was made over 30 years ago and just touch that thing inside you i don't know it's pretty magical yeah i mean you mentioned the background of the record i read a little bit about that as well while doing my research but um i imagine you may know more than i do about this i mean how did the record come into being Okay, from what I understand, there's not a huge amount of information out there about it, but it was recorded in the 70s. Sybil Bear made this, it's a bedroom record, essentially. This this woman recorded an album on a tape machine, and her son, I guess, made copies of it 30 years later. Somehow Jay Maskus, you know, from Dinosaur Jr., got a copy and handed it over to this label, uh, who then released it. Uh, It's kind of got this interesting mythology surrounding it because of that. It comes out of obscurity from this unknown agent. I guess that Sybil Baird did have some kind of acting career. I I didn't know her from any of that, and I haven't seen any of that work of hers. But Mm -hmm. if you look at photographs of her, she's certainly very beautiful. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And do you recall how you first came to discover it? Yes, I I do. I had heard about her and I I think peripherally but hadn't heard the album and I was watching can I can I'm going to yeah, The End of the Fucking World on Netflix. Uh-huh. <laughs> my my partner was watching it. And Lost Something in the Hills came on and it mm. was like a drop everything moment and go into the room to find out what song that was. She sings this lyric I grew up in declivities, and it was just so crushing. It was such a brutal, dark, sad, and simple thing to say, in Mm. a way. It was so poetic. I walked in and immediately I had to know what it was. That doesn't happen to me very often, that I'm Mm. so um, struck by something that I hear that I have to drop everything and go find out about it. So I did. I I don't know, that might not be the most romantic story about how I discovered it, but (laughs) once I found it, I mean, I I listened to that album nonstop for months on end. Mm. And that was all I listened to. Do you have a favorite track? I mean, I've read that Forget About hits particularly hard for you, is that right? Yeah, Forget About. Oh, God, that song. (laughs) 
It's an interesting record, and I think for me, a lot of albums that are my most dear favorite albums take time. You know, they you got to hang out and get to know them, just like a a good friend or a lover or whatever. You, it's not something that comes instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, that song really struck me, Lost Something in the Hills, but then the longer I listened to this album, the other songs kind of revealed themselves and, and their value and their uniqueness and the particular strange character they have in the song, Forget About. Ugh, it's, it's, it's so beautiful. It's, mm. It does strike something. She says... Um, you made me forget about past and pain and just that contrasting with these kind of just simple day-to-day regular person kind of observations and experiences she sings about Hmm. i don't know i think in fact i I saw you make this observation in in a different article but her voice as well is quite unadorned very simple like almost flat sounds wrong but you know what i mean it's like not ornamented um what i find in that song is that i think the first time she says forget about and this may happen at other points i've only listened to it a couple of times but she has a little kind of falter that yeah. sounds so um emotionally charged it may have just been technical but it's like oh it hits quite hard I think that's it. that's the gold of this album. It's that you're listening to a person expressing themselves. They're not. It's not a train. She's not a trained vocalist. I don't think she was. Um, mm-hmm. It's exactly what you said. It's the faltering. It's the slightly out of tune guitar. The imperfections are what make this record so endearing. On the guitar, actually, as you say, there's some strings that are clearly like out of tune on some tracks which is really warm really charming i think also as well you you get the impression that it's a guitar that's been played it sounds like it's not like she's got a fresh pack of strings and bunged them on to record these songs right right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is something that struck me about your record as well i think on blooms of oblivion especially when you start to strum it sounds like and sorry if you did crack open a fresh pack of strings for this record as well, <laughs> but it sounds like a guitar that you spent time with. Um, I was wondering whether that was like a specific reference point for you. You said it's like an ingredient list, but the sound of the guitar on this record, on Colour Green. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so these albums this these albums that we're going we're talking about this album in particular um give, gave me permission to have novice type energy to be imperfect <laughs> imperfect and to show humanity and show um flaws and like you said yeah this the guitar that i play on that record i've taken around the world with me and it's um like a very good friend hmm. And, you know, instruments are imperfect. Human, I'm imperfect. I'm not a trained musician either or a singer. And part of setting out to do a record that has live takes the way that Color Green was, was to capture those moments in a way that wasn't forced and was not planned. You know, when you mm-hmm. track an album in a studio and you... Um, 
particularly in I've been in several bands and other recordings where we set out to do something that is very intentional and you do the takes until you play it the right way or sing it the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you uh, strive to achieve something elevated in that sense of perfection. Mm. Whereas with this, I want, I really did want to capture those kind of faltering moments that you kind of grabbed onto with her voice there, um, but in a way that was organic and not contrived. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and so this, uh, this album totally enlightened me to that approach and to making that an okay thing to do, but also a very um, effective way of communicating emotion. And mm. so... Yeah, letting things be out of tune and letting them crack is key yeah. for this, not for everything, I guess. With Color Green, are there any other lyrics that particularly resonate with you? I think when I was listening to it last night, is there a track, I can't remember, is it called Endings? Um, she comes out with this line where it's like, you open the door and I feel cold. Life I'm is looking short. for it. Life is short. The love is old. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Gorgeous. Are there are there specific other specific lines that really kind of wedge themselves in your in your head? Because it felt already in these early stages of listening to the record that it felt like a record that was ripe for that kind of thing. With color green. Yeah. Um, let me think on that. I mean, like I said, with the line that grabbed me from "Lost Something in the Hills." The whole record is really full of poetic stuff. I mean, there's also, there are moments on there where you can, you kind of are like, all right, you're losing me with this moment. But at the same time, it's really (laughs) wonderful and endearing because you're hearing somebody like learning their songwriting style Mm -hmm. um, and just being so naturally gifted with poetry. I'm trying to think if if there are any other lines that I could like pull out of the hat to recite to you, but... Um, yeah, it's quite an I ask, isn't I, it? I'm sorry. Yeah. I think it's just like some of the wonderful storytelling also that she talks about kind of throw, like just getting on a train. She goes out to do some shopping. Right. And just ends up going to Genoa like, yeah, I guess that happens, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. The guitar does like a nice thing there as well. It kind of kicks into a different rhythm. Like, yeah. <laughs> she's kind of surprised herself that she's heading to Genoa. Yes, this is true. Was high, and I found me on the road to Genoa. Did you ever drive in a monster constitution? And fine to reach a seaport and done is a solution You should if you could Now slowly, slowly I no longer thought of what is good or what is good Alright Emma, let's go to your second important album. Which one do you want to talk about now? I think we could wedge the Shape of Despair record <laughs> <Okay>. in there. <laughs> <laughs> Wicked, so Monotony Fields. Yeah, tell me yeah. why this album's important to you. So I am a person that listens to albums and they become like the part of my 
wardrobe, my psychic wardrobe, you know, you need to, you need that pair, you know, have a pair of shoes that you wear all the time while I like go through albums. So (laughs) color green was one I was really listening to in like November of 2019. Um, then I got into the shape of the shape of despair album and not any fields. This album is important to me. I guess because it communicates this level of depression and bleakness that's so intense, but also really beautiful. Um, And I enjoy listening to it. It it kind of was very cathartic for me to have on. I mean, I listen to it constantly. I still listen to it a lot. It's Mm. probably in my top five records of all time. Wow. I don't know. I think once you sort of take a record on into yourself, you just, it doesn't necessarily make sense anymore why you like it so much. It's like you've picked up smoking and maybe it's not good for you, but it's just something you do now. Like, I don't have a choice. I just have to listen to Shape of Despair now. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Um, do you recall how you first came into contact with this one? Yeah, so I am become good friends with ALN, whose project is Mismore, the um, as self described holy doom, holy doomed black metal. Holy is in W H, not as in <laughs> right. sacred, but the and we talk music, and he kind of cues cues me into some metal albums that I didn't know about and we would sometimes sit there and listen to records and he'd put on Shape of Despair and was like, dude, I think you'd really vibe with this record. And I was like, holy shit. It blew my mind. Um, Actually, I just got it on vinyl. I ordered it like six months ago. It was out of print forever. And I'm excited. I haven't listened to it on the record player yet. I mean, my record player is like one of the toy ones you can get from like, Urban Outfitters or something. It's really <laughs> shocking. I would um, probably shouldn't advertise that that's how I listen to records, but hey, it is. Uh, if I do the same, <laughs> then, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> My record yeah. plays a dud as well. Yeah, so so Liam, Liam showed me this album. Yeah. How do you tend to listen to this record then? So as you say, it becomes like a favourite item of clothing. How do you carry it with you? Um, literally, I carry it with me. I, I have a little <laughs> speaker that I got at the Chicago airport. I call it the bloop, like, because <laughs> it makes it goes bloop when it turns on. <laughs> um, so I named it that, and I got it a few years ago. I guess that's kind of a story. I Several years ago, I was toured with this band Woven Hand, who mm-hmm. I really love. Fucking idolize them. David mm-hmm. Eugene Edwards, the singer on tour and you were on tour in Europe and he just had this like little Bluetooth speaker or he'd have his phone and he would like curate his own vibe everywhere he went. He was listening to a record and he just, you know, he had this really commanding presence. So whenever he'd walk near me or into the room, I would just completely be silent. He just had this way. And I was like, that, 
this is really a sick tactic to like get the whole <laughs> external world to not fuck with you as much. So he had he had the speaker. He'd go around with it, curating his vibe. And I was like, I'm gonna do that. I want to do that too. No I got way. a speaker. Yeah, and I just I charge it, and I started taking it on tour. I would put it in our green room and like listen to music before going and playing a show. Um, it's waterproof, so I've take I take it in the shower every day. This is how I listen to wow. it. other other than my shitty turntable. I take my little <laughs> bloop speaker with me everywhere. I mean, I put it in, sometimes if I really need to, I will put it in my little backpack and like old school boombox it down the road as I'm taking a walk, you know? And then I force other people to listen to Shape of Despair. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So in like, so so again, with the wave enhancing it, just in public spaces, it just have this this speaker emanating whatever the the vibe was (laughs) that day. Right, right. Wow. I mean, I don't. I I try not to do that. That you know, if, if I'm in a pub, not if I'm in a public space, I would never do that on like the bus or on the tube or something. Right. Uh, yeah, um, I'm not looking to, to get my that. ass kicked. <laughs> no, but on tour, when you're like, you know, you're you're really forced into close um, spaces with other people, and there's no privacy, like to, to the degree where I would actually just, if in a venue, go into the toilet to have alone time and stand in a stall. Mm-hmm. That's like some, that's a tactic I had for preserving mental health until I got the speaker. Because listening to headphones all the time when you're in a public space or in a venue isn't necessarily like the safest thing to do. So having right. the speaker helps. Anyway, I have the speaker at home now. And I listen to Shape of Despair on the speaker and I'm like in the kitchen with it on holding it, making my tea. Then I take it into the... You know, into my bedroom. It's right here next to me right now. Cool. Yeah, yeah wow. Handy. Yeah, this record. Wow. I I li- first listened to it um, also in motion. Um, drive my car at night yesterday. Oh, that's like, epic. Oh, like on my way to get a really nice takeaway as well. Everything was just right. Um, it's a gorgeous sounding record. Holy moly. I mean, what is it that really as you say you it's hard to articulate when you really connect with a record over so long like what it is that um really draws you in maybe if i say something that's struck me on these initial listens is just the production is oh yeah it's out of this world immense it sounds like the production of a, a faster record mapped onto a slow one in that um i haven't listened to a lot of funeral doom recently but a very like clicky uh kick drum the guitars are very crisp sounding um they sound like metal guitars and you know have the potential to chug as well it's um yeah gorgeous sounding record i mean what is it that you can kind of hang your hat on and say these are wonderful bits about this record for you well to touch on what you said the production is stellar it's it's out of it's just doesn't fuck with like low lo-fi at all it is not some you know that black metal paper sounding stuff aesthetic it is full frequencies from the low range to the high it's just absolutely the fidelity is incredible it's it's a really well-produced album it's got soaring synths epic guitar lines heavy it's got deep growling vocal but also really angelic singing and not like 
Not in a chaotic, um, jumbled mess. I mean, the pace of the record, the tempos are slow and steady to, to moderate. It never, there's no fast section. There's no, there's no black metal elements. It's, it's, it's a very beautiful album. I mean, it, and again, this, with this record for me, it's really about the journey of the whole thing. And I listen to this record, I usually listen to the entire record. I don't like cut to a track and go, I just want to hear this, this one today. I want to, you know, you got to go for the whole journey. Sure, it really yeah. takes you somewhere. It takes you into the, into the kingdom of despair. And then these little moments happen where a guitar line, it feels like the clouds are parting and there will be this beautiful vocal. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing for this, like if we're going to talk about the ingredient list or what I would hang my hat on, as you said, I, I guess, um, is that this record gave me personally some permission to be like bleak. And uh-huh. it's a, it's a, the content of the album is very bleak. The lyrics are so depressed. They're, they're devastating. Um, they deal with just like this crushing existential dread you know and there's no point on the record where the where they're singing about like some specific incident it's just more this general embodiment of despair and that's really i think what they set out to do as artists mm. um i think they're from finland anyway i really wanted them to play as part of my road burden curation but it couldn't happen um yeah the permission to be bleak and heavy and to kind of ex- explore hopelessness. I, I feel like there's this desire and like pressure to have a resolution sometimes in, in music. Mm-hmm. If you're going to make a make talk about trauma and addiction and kind of the stuff that I tend to focus on and what I do, um, people want a happy ending sometimes. Mm. They want to know that you've overcome the stuff you're talking about. Like, well, you're better now, right? you're like you're you're over this and it's like well you know what no like actually (laughs) right um i i happen to be in a much better place at the moment Uh, and the journey of what what i went through is kind of evolving into into a more uplifting story but at the time of writing and at the time of listening to this album i probably had a good year of listening to this record before i started writing or working on engine of hell but Hmm. Uh, monotony fields gave me depre- um, gave me depression <laughs> it allowed me to feel my depression and to explore hopelessness hmm. um, and explore like kind of the feeling of a gray eternity that that I related to and that it didn't need a resolution mm-hmm. um, anyway hmm. I hope that answered the question yeah beautiful I mean I, I think that's so interesting what you say about that absence of resolution i mean it comes up as well in say for example films where you have some films that don't allow you to pass off the emotional burden of traveling through them right at the end of it um by saying but don't worry because everyone turned out all right so off you (laughs) pop back home and you don't need to think about this film again they just let that feeling sit for a while i tend to I guess I'm sure this is true for most people but the stuff that stays with me is the stuff where that doesn't happen and you have to reconcile with it somehow either through listening or experiencing again or just contemplating that experience um, until you can I don't know make sense of it I guess 
A hundred percent agree. And I think that that was something that I, I really love and is interesting that film gets permission to do that. Um, right. Yeah. People and in music, people are like, "Are you okay? Are you?" Da, 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 da? And like, is someone calling Lars von Trier and going like, "Hey, man, <laughs> do you need do you need a hug?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Are you gonna finish this movie? Like, can we have wrap it up with something? You know, it's like, <laughs> no. And in music, and as a like a woman, you know, I um, I'm not didn't want to do that. I, I didn't feel that. That made sense. I, I think that it's okay and and interesting and and getting the permission to do that. I'm leaning on the idea of how that is permissible in film. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why music is treated differently, but and metal and metal gives permission to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, to just kind of, I don't know if that it's wallowing, but it it doesn't have to have a hopeful message. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, I wonder if with music as well, people seem to potentially have the sense that it's a more personal transmission than a film, more so, where it could be attributed to Lars von Trier. But I guess the tendency to do that is like less, um, less immediate. Whereas if it's a record by Emma Ruth Rundle, people are like, "Oh, Emma Ruth Rundle specifically is is asking for our help here with these right. lyrics." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with this this Monotony Fields records, as you say, it's um, a journey that you take from start to finish. So it feels a bit cruel, as it always does, to ask if you have a favourite track. Um, that opening riff, unbelievable on this record, and it lasts for so long. I think the wallowing on this record is the thing that I'm like, wow, it's not afraid to stick with a riff for like five minutes. Um, do you have a favourite track? I do, yeah. I think the back-to-back um, descending inner night and I know that the lyrics are where he's still dreaming of life. The distant dream of life? Yeah, that's it. And the two tracks, the the two tracks back-to-back there is my favorite moment of the record. Um, moments being long. Like you said, these there's like... So Descending Inner Night and then The Distant Dream of Life, those two back-to-back, I think, is my favorite, would be my favorite tracks. But the record really feels like one long track. And, like, yes, the riffs are... I mean, the phrases, the musical phrases are very are long and drawn out and time-wise not drawn out drawn out has like a negative connotation but yeah there's space and time passing and i think that that supports the lyrical content you know the fact that this note is happening for a long time is just um supporting the idea of what they're singing about with some of these lyrics that are um Years of breathing this consuming black sphere that surrounds me. Life in your future exists not for me. And like, you know, the, that those lyrics are delivered over minutes, like <laughs> not seconds, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the lyrics are worth a read. You don't necessarily need to have them to appreciate the music. I think that... Um, the tonality of the vocals along with the instrumentation and production communicate the devastation <laughs> adequately. But if you want to take it to the next level, read along, you know. <laughs> I listened to the whole thing this morning in the dark with my eyes closed. Oh, amazing. Do you do that often, that kind of listening experience? 
I'm trying to do it more. Um, mm. My t- kind of changing my relationship to how I consume music, I guess. I used to do, I had a, a definite, like, drugged out version of that I used to do. Right. Like, getting really super psycho high and listening to albums, like, with my face in the speaker, but I don't do that anymore. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, I think now listening with intention um, and mindfulness is a great way to listen to music um, versus like I don't know sometimes I feel compulsed to scrolling through Instagram while I'm listening or looking at a TV and all the things at once but yeah Let's go to your final important album. What have we got? Um, so it's Tori Amos Boys for Pele. Nice. So yeah. yeah, tell me a bit about why this one's important to you. Um, this record, I think it's from 1996, um, Tori Amos. This record, I, I just was for me it came out when I was a little girl um to becoming a teenager you know puberty and it deals a lot with kind of explicit feminist issues and um female experience in some ways that are kind of sharp feeling uh Mm. the the musicianship on it is incredible uh, Tori Amos is a huge musical influence for me in general and like shaping my the way that I sing, um, my relationship to piano. I think that's very clear in listening to this record, my record that you can hear that I'm super influenced by her. Uh-huh. It really struck me in my formative years. You know, there's those albums that you listen to when you're kind of in that age, at that age, the coming of age age. Yeah, and yeah. you never, you'll never forget the lyrics. You'll never forget those songs, and they they can just take you right back to that time. Um, I learned to sing singing along to this album, and I kind of went and revisited it as I was writing and getting back with piano it just touching the piano again made the you know the neurological it's like hey time travel to when you were this age you started playing <laughs> piano and so i listened to started listening to the album again it's it's really a masterpiece it's also like tori amos that's the first album of hers that she produced herself she had been in a relationship, I guess, with the guy that was producing her. Other, it, it's a departure in so many ways. It mm. has this radical energy to it. It's got this like fuck you ness. It's got this incredible depth lyrically. She talks about some pretty ugly things mm-hmm. um, and unsavory topics. I think that is another thing about it that I really love and kind of leaned on and inspiration for what I was doing. I don't know. It's it's the productions on it on it is also very striking and incredible. Yeah. It's it's an, I think it's a pretty 10 out of 10. It's a 10 out of 10 album. Everything <laughs> about it is is pretty perfect for me in my mind. So, yeah. 
So, yeah, you say it's a f- like a formative record that you encountered when you were... Do you say you were a teenager when you first came into it? I think I was probably 12, 12, 13, right at that, like, awkward age. Do you remember how you discovered it when you were 12, 13? I'm trying to think. I, I don't know. I, at that time... You know, we still had MTV and radio. Mm-hmm. Um, I had heard her other records. You know, she had the hit Cornflake Girl, which wasn't on, is not on Boys for Pele. Right. I'm trying to think of what the hit on that record is. On on Boys for Pele? I think it's, yeah. Is it the s- I'm not sure. S- one about a sneeze? Didn't that come out as a, a single? Caught a light sneeze. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that that song was, if it was on the radio where I lived or not, but I'm not, I don't know, you know, um, mm. it was probably the kind of thing where someone had it at school or listened to it in a record store and got it. My mom was a regular at Tower Records on Sunset Boulevard. We grew up, I grew up in LA, uh, and she would go get new releases every week. She'd go buy cassette tapes. Oh, and nice. she'd take us, and so we'd go into Tower Records, and they used to have those stations where you could, like, you know, push a button and listen to whatever album. Oh. Um, so somehow I was able to get that record. I mean, and the artwork in it is incredible. She's got a piano set on fire. She's, like, nursing a, a piglet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She's got a fucking gun, legs <laughs> out, covered in mud. There's a snake. It's just everything about it is, like, it's just this big Tory energy. She's had enough of these dudes fucking with her shit, and she's throwing them in a volcano and making this wild, intense album. And it goes to some very dark places. Mm. I don't know. And it's a long record as well. This is another one that's like 70 minutes. Uh, yeah. Um, goes everywhere. I mean, what I was really interested to read when I was researching this is that a lot of the initial reactions that people had so there was a couple of like think pieces on the record from people who had since been converted to loving it but spoke about really feeling quite strong negative feelings toward this album and Tori generally when they first came into Boys for Pele and they had generally someone in their life who was like no come on give it another chance but were like you know fervently like I really dislike this record and I dislike Tori Amos. I mean, did you like it straight away? Um, I mean, this record for me, like, I just was... This was, like, gospel to me when I heard it. And it, <laughs> then it remained that way for a lot of my life. I, I know what you're saying. It was interesting for a while. But I think the thing is, people don't... People don't... Of course, the, this album was rejected. It's a woman yeah. who's had enough of patriarchy. She's like, it's not an outright record where she's getting, you know, it's not guerrilla girls making art that's explicitly about feminist issues, but it, it is. I mean, she's she's singing about Jesus was a woman, you know, those yeah. are in the lyrics, yeah. Muhammad, my friend. She, the album is titled Boys for Pele. She's... she's a woman doing something intense. That's not generally excitable, like excited. People aren't excited for that. They're they're freaked out by it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think throwing off an old skin and c- 
coming with some intense energy. That's the thing that I think people are freaked out about by Tori Amos is that she's got really intense vibes. Her right. energy is intense. Her performances are intense. Her lyrics are intense. Her she's a masterful singer and a, a masterful piano player, and she's not she's not really messing around. Um, this album is brutal. It's not catering to. Um, soft topics or things that are easy to discuss Mm -hmm. but it's because it's got that fiery quality to it it's just it's my favorite of her albums and it's one of my favorite albums of all time and there other records of hers that you really connect with as well not like this one this is the Mm. one for me this is the classic i i love i can listen to the other albums i think that after um I kind of stopped listening after To Jupiter and Back, but that probably just had to do with my own personal life and being sent away somewhere or other and not having access to music for a while. But mm-hmm. this this is the magic record, in my opinion. You're like getting a woman who's at the top of her game as a musician, just severing her... like she's just found this freedom within herself and said, Hey, I don't need to be a certain way. I don't need to have these people producing my stuff. I don't, you know, and she'd already been through a lot of rejection and strange things with her band in the eighties. And she really finally fully realizes herself at this point and makes a masterpiece. That's this moment. And I think it's the peak for her in her, it's her third album. Right. I don't know. Third albums are kind of a thing for for artists, I guess. Anyway, I don't know if any of that made sense. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, <laughs> I, I saw a, a bit of a, a clip of a documentary that I think it was made around the time of, of recording this. Because was it, was it recorded in a church or some of it? Some of it was recorded in a church, yeah. yeah. Yes. And there's like footage of her singing, like belting into a church. When she's talking about doing that and talking about writing these songs, she's absolutely buzzing. It's the kind of thing you watch and you're like, Man, every song that you like, I write should feel like that. Like, that's surely, you know, um, that's the peak right there. That's what you want to get to is absolutely psyched about what you're doing. It definitely feels like that she hits some kind of alchemical, like, pinnacle doing right. this record yeah this is her like dracarys moment her like good for her right. you know the gone girl kind of situation um <laughs> you're like you go just go girl do it um yeah and then she talks about things that are like gruesome female topics you know i think i think that caudalite sneeze is about like a scandalous pregnancy that's how women deal with that that kind of stuff that Right. It's not a popular topic. It's like, you know, it's it's not pop yeah. music. It's not pop no. music, but and yet it is like was mainstream at that time, I guess. And have you seen Tori play live? I have. Yeah, I saw her play twice. Um, once was, God, I mean. I was probably in my late teens when I saw her play. I'm not sure what tour it would have been. It was incredible. I'm trying to remember where it was. <laughs> we used to have a venue called Universal 
theater or something. It's been torn down. It was like at the Universal City Walk. Pretty horrible place. I don't recommend going there. Um, but right. the venue's gone now. And the other place I saw her was in San Diego. God, I don't know what it was so long ago. There's a lot of tracks going on here. Do you have a favorite or favorites? Yeah, I think that my favorite tracks on this record are Marianne. Um, that song deals with suicide. And I want to say there's a little bit of like Virginia Wolf energy on this record too. Right. Um, and kind of th- that song Marianne, I really loved that song when I was a little, little or young girl. It just kind of dealt with being a lost youth and a, a girl out of place and, you know, pushed to the side in a, in a strange um, way. Let's see what other tracks are. I love Tallulah. I think Tallulah was the hit, actually. I think that was the one that had a music video. Ah, right, yeah. That's like a yeah. full band kind of job, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of this record is full band produced, got a lot of sh- stuff, instrumentation going on. So I think those are my favorite songs. I love Blood Roses. The harpsichord on there is really stunning. Mm. She rips it up. When you think back to discovering this record, you know, when you were initially listening to it, right, what do those listening experiences look like in, in memory? Like, how were you uh, consuming this record when you were, like, 13, just getting into Boys for Pele? I would imagine I, I had it on a CD. I know that I did. I think I still have it somewhere. I probably had a really crap disc make disc man that I would, you know, ideally be walking around somewhere listening to it. Walking around and listening to music is the other best way to to listen to music, I think. Yeah. Obviously not driving at that age, but um I have a lot of memories actually. I was at a school. I was at a um sent sent away place in rural Oregon when I was that age. And I did have that CD, and I would listen to it um, walking around in the woods um, and just kind of exploring the strange rural hill. The school I went to was this, like, abandoned monastery that then was taken over by um, another group, and they ran a school there. But I have a lot of memories of being there and listening to it, so sort of rainy... I mean, the place kind of could have passed for rural England, really. It was very green, rolling hills and, um, you know, a good amount of mud and strange detritus in a field, that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, very England, yeah. Yeah, so that, that kind of landscape... My final question for you, Emma, is how you tend to consume music now. Like, do you, like, how do you tend to buy records? Like, how does music come into your life generally? Um, the way that it comes into my life these days, quite frankly, is um, mostly through streaming and then, you know, making a conscious decision to 
buy albums from bands to support them mm-hmm. um, and to have on my crappy little turntable. But my main way of listening is through my... We already discussed the bloop. <laughs> yes, and, we did. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I have some feelings about how streaming works, you know, and that being a musician myself, it's not... It doesn't really support the band. So I do stream. I listen to Spotify. I'm trying to switch to Apple Music because they they do support bands and artists more. Mm -hmm. And then I will buy the records I listen to. That's important, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that's it. And And I love to best listen when I walk and in headphones or practicing this new way of just listening to an album um, and not doing anything else. But I have music on quite a lot, you know, and and it's something I have to remind myself that I need to have, that I need to listen to music, because I live alone and it's really easy to go into very strange headspaces. And it's like, hey, put on this record and do something. Let this energy of this music take you somewhere. So, Right, nice. The pattern breaker, yeah. 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 Nice. Well, Emma, this has been Ace. I've really enjoyed, I mean, speaking about your record for one, but these three important records have been great time for me over the past few days, but fabulous to hear your, your insights as well. So thank you so much. Okay, thanks for enduring my strange rantings, but I really do. <laughs> I really appreciate your time and, and your, your care for this. No trouble. And to everyone listening, see you next time. Goodbye. Okay, thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jack.